0: Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.
1: <laughs>
0: Welcome to Channel 9 of the STRY Radio Network, where stories live.
2: Welcome back to the Wicked Library. We took a little break. We're back now. Today's episode, Gator Bait, was written by Owl Going Back and features a custom music score by John Nespazinski, our music director over at our other podcast, The Lift. Art for today's show was created by the very talented Alex Murd. I want to thank everyone who took the opportunity to support the show on Patreon during our break. Those who did got a special episode during our break by Jessica McHugh, Playground Zero. You can support the show on Patreon for as little as $2 a month over at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. Today's intro is Allison Crane from the Uncanny County podcast. If you've not heard of or listened to the Uncanny County podcast, you really should. If you're a fan of this show and you like your horror with a slice of humor, you're really going to dig Uncanny County. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Allison and we'll get to today's story.
0: Hi, everyone. This is Alison Crane, one of the creators of Uncanny County. I'm here today to introduce the show and warn you about the Wicked Library, which is intended for an adult audience. The content of this show is disturbing and will probably give you nightmares. If you're going to complain later, stop listening now. Ugh. Hey, you think I could get a warm up on this coffee? I mean, you promised me a damn fine cup of coffee for doing this, and this is ice cold.
3: Oh, you say you want a warm-up, do you? Not happy with the temperature? Okie-dokie-okie!
0: Wow, you're ugly. Hey, that doesn't look like coffee.
3: That's because it's gasoline! (laughs) What the
0: hell do you think you're doing?
3: Oh, just giving you a warm-up. Hey! <laughs> Trust me, I know from personal experience... Oh, my God. ...this will make you extra toasty. <laughs> hey! Uh, let's see if I can make you really burn for me. <laughs> oh, my God. Stop it. Ah! Oh, you're kind of cute when you scream in agony like that. Ah! That's right, let me hear you! <laughs> ah! oh, look at you, Scrabble! High word score! <laughs> ah! uh, how disappointing. I thought you had a little more fire in you. Guess I'll have to put you out sooner. Get it? <laughs> Well, look at that. You look just like me now. The resemblance is actually uncanny. <laughs> I've got a warning for you. Don't play with fire. Especially, don't let the fire play with you. <laughs> Kiddies, have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yet. Hold on to yourselves, whirls and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time. At the Wicked Library. <laughs>
0: all going back.
2: In his tiny dressing room at the rear of the building, even with the door closed and the radio on, Harry Gallagher could hear the audience, his audience. Like the hum of some giant electrical generator, the noise echoed along the hallway and sent snippets of laughter and conversation into the four corners of the room. There was a sharp knock at the door and a voice said, five minutes till showtime. Harry didn't reply, made no move to answer the door. Let them wait, he thought. He replaced the cap on the bottle of bronzing cream and continued to study his reflection in the mirror. The man who stared back at him from the depths of the smoky glass was short and wiry, with high cheekbones, a hooked nose, dark skin, and coal-black hair. The hair, like his skin, was also artificially colored satisfied that his skin coloring was perfect and that every hair was in place. Harry slipped on a pair of blue jeans, socks, cowboy boots, and a vest made of tanned alligator skin. He turned again to study his image in the mirror and smiled. No one who saw him ever guessed that he was a 37-year-old ex-salesman from New York City of German and Irish descent. Instead, they all believed he was a Native American, fresh off a Florida reservation, a child of the swamps. And that was exactly what he wanted people to believe. For Harry Gallagher, who had never made much money as a salesman, was making a fortune as Indian Joe, the world's greatest alligator wrestler. He crossed the room, opened the door, and stepped out into the narrow hallway that led backstage. The hallway was empty, and greatly magnified the noise of the crowd. From the way it sounded, Harry was certain that the Cow Palace of Orlando, Florida, was again filled to capacity. Saturday nights were always good, but they were even better during tourist season. Most of the customers would be Europeans, in town to visit Disney World or one of the other theme parks, their accents as thick as the cigarette smoke floating above their tables. A short flight of stairs led up to the stage. Harry took the steps two at a time. The stage was empty, except for a shallow wading pool off to one side. Inside the pool, with only his eyes and nose above the murky water, was Harry's co-star, George, an eight-foot Florida alligator. George's mouth had been taped shut with duct tape to keep him from biting the stagehands who would handle him before and after the show. Harry would remove the tape at the beginning of his act, but wasn't too worried about getting bitten himself. For one thing, old George was blind, and had been since birth. For another, prior to each show, Harry paid the stage crew to stick George in a walk-in cooler to lower his body temperature and make him sluggish. With the house lights dimmed, and most of the audience drunk, Nobody ever noticed that George never acted as spunky as a gator in the wild. A sudden blast of music from out front informed Harry that he was about to go on. He took his place in the center of the stage. A few seconds later, the announcer's voice came over the loudspeakers.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, this is the moment you've all been waiting for. The Cow Palace of Orlando, Florida... Is proud to present to you a show of death defying courage and daring as one man pits himself against the most dangerous creature alive. Direct from the Florida Everglades, I present to you Indian Joe, the world's greatest alligator wrestler.
2: The curtain parted to thunderous applause. Harry would have smiled. That would ruin the illusion of the noble red man he was trying to create. Instead, he stood as rigid as a statue, his arms folded across his chest, staring out over a sea of expectant faces. The house lights dimmed. A single spotlight sought him out, found him, illuminated him like some powerful deity. A hush fell over the audience. Harry allowed the silence to stretch for effect then raised his hand in greeting. Welcome, my brothers and sisters, he said, speaking in his best Indian voice, a voice acquired from watching countless old westerns on television. Several people in the audience leaned forward, eager to hear what he had to say. My name is Indian Joe. I am a gator wrestler. I have wrestled alligators ever since I was twelve years old. My grandfather taught me As he taught my father before me, Harry paused to look around. What I do here tonight is no trick. It is real. The alligator I am about to wrestle is not someone's pet. It was caught in the swamp only yesterday and is not very happy about being here. There were a few chuckles from the audience. Alligator wrestling is not a sport. It is a way for a Native American to show courage and put his faith In the great spirit, he turned and watched as six stagehands lifted George from the waiting pool. Even though the alligator was blind and his mouth had been taped, he could still put up quite a fight. Cautious of his powerful tail, the stagehands approached the gator from the side. Four of the men grabbed his legs, while the other two quickly moved in and secured his tail and head. As the stagehands struggled with the hissing gator. Harry allowed his gaze to wander over the audience, savoring the atmosphere of excitement and fear. He was just about to turn away when something in the front row caught his attention and set off a warning bell in his head. Harry looked again, staring past the spotlight that nearly blinded him. There, in the center of the front row, alone at a table, Sat a man who stood out in sharp contrast from the others around him. He was tall and muscular, with a dark complexion and shoulder-length black hair. He wore blue jeans and boots and a yellow shirt that had a wide multicolored patchwork stripe across the chest, a seminal shirt. Indian. Harry frowned slightly. An Indian in the audience could mean trouble. They generally took a dim view of white people pretending to be Native American, especially those making money at it. He heard that the American Indian Movement had a large enrollment in the state of Florida. So far, he'd been lucky and hadn't ended up on Ames' hit list. Maybe they didn't know about him. But now... He doubted if the Indian had come just to see the show. He didn't look like the type that frequented tourist attractions. A fellow gator wrestler? Perhaps. He looked rugged enough. That thought made Harry a little nervous. The last thing he needed was for a real gator wrestler to watch his act. But it was too late to worry about it now. He had a show to do. The stagehand set the thrashing alligator down in the middle of the stage and moved back. Harry approached it from the side, careful of its tail. He stepped in quickly, straddled the gator, and grabbed its head from behind. He held its mouth closed with one hand, while he removed the tape with the other. With the tape removed, the alligator hissed and opened its mouth wide, much to the delight of the audience. Careful to keep his fingers clear of its mouth, Harry went into his carefully rehearsed speech about the dangers of alligator wrestling. Halfway through the presentation, he glanced toward the first row of tables. The Indian was gone. Harry wondered where he had gone, but only for a moment. He had his hands full. The show was a success, as were all his shows. He wowed the audience, who never suspected that George was blind, with a series of well rehearsed moves. Once the Gator's mouth was again taped, and he was safely back in his pen. Harry took time out to sign autographs and pose for a few pictures. He hung around and answered questions until the band started to play, and then, grabbing a beer from the bar, walked slowly back to his dressing room, happy in the knowledge that he had the following night off. Harry didn't see the man until it was too late. He stood just inside the doorway of the dressing room, concealed in the darkness. As Harry entered the room... The man stepped forward. Harry started to yell, but a fist lashed out. Darkness followed. His head and jaw throbbed with pain, and there was a vile taste in the back of his mouth. Blood. As he slowly regained consciousness, Harry Gallagher became aware that he was moving. His body swayed slightly, and the sounds of an engine vibrated through him. He opened his eyes and looked around, trying to get his bearings. He lay in semi-darkness, a metal roof curved overhead. A moment passed before he realized that he was lying in the back of a van. But whose van was it? He tried to move, but couldn't, and realized that his ankles and wrists were tied kidnapped. I've been kidnapped! A knot of fear settled deep in the pit of his stomach. He lifted his head and looked forward. The van had two seats, but only the driver's was occupied. A man was driving. In the faint glow of the instrument panel, Harry could see his muscular arms, his long hair, and the yellow shirt that stretched across his broad shoulders. The Indian Where are you taking me? Harry asked, his voice barely a whisper. The Indian looked up and studied him in the rearview mirror, but didn't answer. Kidnapping is against the law, Harry said, feeling his face flush with anger. So is fraud, the Indian replied. What are you talking about? Harry asked. He figured if he could get the man engaged in a conversation, he might be able to find out why he had been abducted and what was in store for him. The Indian reached up and adjusted the mirror. Harry could see part of his face. His eyes glowed yellow from the dashboard lights. You call yourself Indian Joe, he said, but I doubt there is even one drop of Indian blood in you. Am I right? In his present predicament, Harry thought it best not to lie. He nodded. The Indian smiled. His teeth were tiny, and sharp-looking. I thought so. What's your real name, white man? John? Fred? Harry Gallagher, he answered. And yours? Harry didn't expect the Indian to tell him, and was surprised when he did. Wawakan. the Indian said. What a name. You claim to be the world's greatest alligator wrestler, Wawakan continued. But that is not true either, is it? You may fool the tourists, but you didn't fool me. The gator you wrestled tonight was blind. Harry was shocked. How did you know that? He told me, a replied. Who told you? Why, the gator, of course. Sweat broke out on Harry's forehead as he realized that he was dealing with a madman. Not much of a challenge in wrestling a blind gator, is there, Harry? It's just a show, Harry said. I'm an actor. Then you should tell people that you're an actor, instead of claiming to be something you're not. That alligator didn't move very fast either. Why was that? Drugs? We lowered his body temperature before the show, Harry answered. You did what? We put him in a cooler and brought his body temperature down. It makes him easier to handle. The Indian grew angry. You make me sick, he spat. You take a blind, helpless creature and kill it a little more each day so you can pretend to be something you're not. A real alligator wrestler would never do something so cruel. He respects the gator he wrestles. It is his brother, his equal. And in some cases, it is also his teacher. For a long time now, We've heard of you and your little show. At first, we chose to ignore you, hoping you would grow tired of playing Indian and go away. But you didn't go away. You stayed instead, insulting my people, making a mockery of something sacred, something you could never understand. Finally, we could stand it no longer. Something had to be done. Harry didn't like Wilwokin's tone of voice. He had a feeling the Indian had more in mind than just putting a good scare into him. What are you going to do? he asked, trying to disguise the fear in his voice. Do? Where are you taking me? But smiled. Where? Why, Harry, I'm going to give you a chance to prove yourself. Tonight, you're going to give an encore performance for my people. I can see it now. Indian Joe, the world's greatest alligator wrestler, will amaze the world as he wrestles the world's greatest alligator. Harry felt his mouth go dry. He struggled at his bonds, but to no avail. Finally, his shoulders and neck muscles fatigued, and he laid his head back on the floor. As he stared up at the ceiling, listening to the sound of the tires spinning below him, he whispered a short prayer for help. The last thing in the world he wanted was to wrestle a healthy alligator. There was no way of telling how long they drove, but it seemed like forever when the van slowed and turned off the highway onto a bumpy side road. About a half an hour later, Milwaukee stopped the van and killed the engine. Oh God, this is it. Harry's heart pounded in fear and he found it difficult to breathe. He lay motionless as we'll Wawakan opened his door and climbed out of the van. He heard him walk around the van, and then the side door slid open. Fresh air entered the van, bringing with it the cries of crickets and the scent of night blooming jasmine. Harry took deep, gasping breaths. He raised his head and looked out through the opening. Beyond the van, trees crowded close together. They were in the woods. But what woods? And where? Well, Wawakan stepped into view, his immense size nearly blocking the view. He pulled a knife from his sheath on his belt and ran his thumb along its edge. End of the line, my friend. Harry knew he was about to die. The crazy Indian was going to cut him into little pieces and bury him in the woods. But to his surprise, Milwaukee used the knife to cut the rope binding Harry's ankles and helped him climb out of the van. His body stiff from both the ride and being tied up, Harry had to lean against the van until the feeling returned to his legs. Beyond the narrow road where they stood, the ground sloped away to murky water from which grew gnarled trees, vines, and other plants. Harry had never been in a swamp before, but he knew he was in the middle of one now. Milwaukee stepped in front of him. As I have said, tonight you will have a chance to prove yourself. You will see what kind of alligator wrestler you really are. What kind of man you are. He pointed out a narrow path of dry ground leading into the swamp. That path leads through the middle of the swamp. Through the very heart of my people's land. It is not an easy path to follow. For it is filled with many dangers. Men far greater than you, Harry, have tried to walk this path and failed. And now it is your turn. You are to follow the path until you reach its end, or until you meet your death, whichever comes first. And if I refuse? Harry asked. We'll walk and open the van's passenger door and took out a lever action rifle. If you refuse, Then I will be forced to gut-shoot you and leave you to die. To emphasize his point, he cocked the rifle and aimed it at Harry. It doesn't look like I have much of a choice then, Harry said. Joaquin grinned, again displaying a set of teeth that must have been artificially sharpened. He stepped forward, turned Harry around, and cut the cords binding his wrists. Harry rubbed his wrists, feeling the circulation slowly return to his hands. Another thing, Hawakin said as he stepped back. If you should try to turn around and come back to this road, my people will kill you. His people? Are there other Indians out here? Your destiny awaits you, Harry Gallagher. Go, now. Harry started to argue, but didn't. He thought about trying to take the gun away from Hawakin, but figured he'd only get himself killed. Heroics against bigger opponents only worked in the movies. Like it or not, he had no choice but to do what he was told. So, without another word, he turned and started down the path. The path was narrow, the ground spongy. Branches of the trees arched overhead and created the illusion that he walked through a long dark tunnel. Spanish moss shimmered like silky spiderwebs in the moonlight, while tree roots stretched twisted fingers along the ground. The air was heavy with the smell of decaying vegetation, and the night echoed with the cries of frogs. About 30 feet down the path, Harry stopped and turned around. The foliage was so thick he could no longer see the road or the van. He thought about going back, but quickly dismissed the idea. Wawakan would be waiting for him. Harry had no doubts that the Indian's threats were real. The man was insane. No, his best bet was to continue on and hope for the best. 50 or 60 yards further on, the path took a sharp turn to the right. At the bend of the path, a log had fallen across the trail. Harry was about to step over the log when it moved. Jesus Christ! Harry exclaimed as he jumped back. The alligator hissed and twisted, lashing out with its tail. Harry tried to get out of the way, but the tail slashed painfully across his left calf. Harry's foot slipped and he almost went down. If most of his weight hadn't been on his right leg, the gator would have taken his legs out from under him. He stumbled back out of the way as the alligator turned toward him. Its mouth opened wide. The alligator lunged, but Harry had recovered his balance and jumped out of the way. He landed to the side of the gator, leaped over its tail, and fled down the path. Only after he was a safe distance away did he stop and look back. He expected the alligator to chase after him like some reptilian guard dog, but it didn't. Instead, it gave a final hiss a flip of its tail, then slipped slowly from the path into the stagnant water, perhaps to sulk. Once in the water, the gator was all but invisible. Only its eyes could be seen. He heard a grunt as it swam away. The grunt was answered by a deeper grunt from off to the right. Harry turned and spotted a second pair of eyes in the water gliding toward him not another one. From further away, several other grunts sounded, as well as from behind him. The sounds drew nearer, closing in on him. Harry broke out in a cold sweat as he realized he was surrounded by alligators. As he listened to their deep-throated cries, he got the feeling that they were deliberately setting a trap for him, but that was ridiculous. Alligators weren't intelligent. They were dumb, cold-blooded reptiles. Or were they? Suddenly, some of the things Wawakin had said seemed to make sense. But Harry's sudden insight about the alligators didn't lessen the danger he was in. If anything, the knowledge only made things seem even more desperate. His only hope for safety lay in getting out of the swamp and back to civilization as quickly as possible. If he remained where he was, he was certain to end up as gator bait. After what seemed like hours, Harry breathed a sigh of relief as he came upon an island of dry ground approximately 20 feet in diameter. The island was apparently maintained by someone, for all but one of the trees had been cut down and the vegetation cleared away. Though he was still surrounded by swamp, The tiny clearing offered a temporary reprieve from the narrow path he had been forced to walk for most of the night. Harry saw that the path continued beyond the island, but he had no desire to set foot upon it. Not yet, anyway. Instead, he sank warily to the ground, resting his back against the trunk of the one remaining tree. It felt so good to rest for a moment. To allow his heartbeat and breathing to return to normal. He leaned his head against the tree and looked up at the night sky. There was no moon, and he wondered if it had already set for the evening. If so, then morning wouldn't be too far off. Things would be better in the daylight. The dangers lessened. He contemplated remaining where he was until then, but knew the Indian would come looking for him. At least he could stay for a little while he must have dozed off for the next thing he knew the sky was noticeably lighter and there was a crick in his neck. Harry blinked several times wiped a hand slowly across his face and lowered his head to look around and got the shock of his life. There no more than five feet from him was the biggest damn alligator he'd ever seen. The gator which must have crept up on him while he dozed Was at least 10 feet long and probably weighed around 500 pounds. There was no way to get around it, for the gator was directly in front of him, close enough to be upon him in a single lunge. To make matters even worse, the tree, which had offered comfort earlier, prevented Harry from backing away. He was in a trap with only one way out straight ahead but that meant taking on a bull alligator much bigger than he was. And this one wasn't blind or half-frozen. Harry watched in horror as the alligator hissed angrily and moved toward him. Slowly, carefully, Harry shifted his weight forward, moving from a sitting position into a squat. He fought to maintain his balance as the muscles in his legs trembled from both fear and sitting so long. He held his breath as he stood up. The gator hissed again and opened its mouth. Harry stared into the gaping maws of the alligator, mesmerized by the soft whiteness of the creature's throat and terror-stricken by the cruel sharpness of its teeth. Teeth that looked like rows of nails set into the lid of a coffin. His coffin. His heart was about to burst. Harry fought to control his fear. He could not afford to be afraid at a time when one false move could spell death. He took a deep breath, swallowed, and then inched forward. With its mouth open, the alligator could no longer see straight ahead. So Harry approached from the front. Easy, Harry. Easy. Not too fast. Relax. This is no different from your act. But there was a difference. A big difference. This time, it was for real. Damn that Indian. No more than a foot away from the gator, he slowly reached his right hand out, palm up, arm low to the ground. His fingertips touched beneath the gator's lower jaw glided back along the rough skin seeking a handhold the gator's mouth slammed shut Harry wet his pants he jerked his arm back and almost lost his balance as he watched the alligator's mouth again opened come on Harry come on one more time one more time and you're home free you can do it but Harry wasn't so sure. He had never wrestled a gator that could hurt him. A minute passed. Two. Harry regained his composure and tried again. He reached out slowly, his fingertips again coming in contact with the underside of the alligator's lower jaw. This time, however, the mouth stayed open. Carefully, Harry slid his fingers back until his whole hand was under the jaw. He lifted upward. There was a little resistance, but not much. Easy, gentle, not too fast. He continued to lift until the alligator's mouth was closed and its head tilted backward. Now, Harry, now, before I can back up. Quick as a snake, he jumped forward and slapped his left hand down on top of the alligator's nose, preventing it from opening its mouth again. The gator tried to pull back. Harry held tight. If he let go now, he would lose his arm. The gator twisted its head and lashed its tail. Harry gripped tighter, holding the alligator's mouth closed. He stepped to the side, careful of the tail, and climbed onto its back. The alligator twisted and shook, whipping its tail from side to side. Harry pulled the gator's head back, riding the struggling reptile like a cowboy atop a bucking bronco. As long as he kept the mouth closed and stayed on its back, he was safe. But he couldn't hold on forever. He would have to find something to tie its jaws shut. My belt. Good idea. But how could he get his belt off without releasing the alligator? There was only one way Harry knew of trick he'd seen a seminal Indian do he had never tried the trick himself or even with a blind alligator it was very dangerous Harry bent the alligator's head back even further and placed the tips of its jaws beneath his chin he lowered his head trapped the gators jaws between his chin and chest and let go with his hands with only the strength of his neck muscles holding the alligator He unbuckled his belt and slipped it free of his trouser loops. Sweat poured down his face, and he felt his strength giving out as he hurried to fasten the belt around the gator's mouth. Once it was tied, he stepped clear as the alligator struggled and thrashed about, unable to get the belt loose. He'd done it. He'd actually wrestled a real alligator, a bloody big damn gator, and won elation washed through him as his body trembled with fatigue. Ah! Harry yelled. He put his hands on his hips and struck a pose of defiance. That's what you get for messing with Indian Joe, the world's greatest alligator wrestler. Ah, but that still remains to be seen. Startled, Harry spun around. Wawakin stood at the edge of the clearing, watching him. Harry clenched his fists in anger. He took a step forward, then spotted the rifle, and stopped. I'm impressed, Walkin said, nodding toward the gator. He's quite old, but at least he can see. Look, Harry said, I've proven myself. I've wrestled a gator for you. Now I demand that you get me out of this swamp. The Indian shook his head. You still don't understand what this is all about, do you? You've wrestled a gator, you've even beat it, but you didn't show any respect for it. An Indian always respects the alligator he wrestles. It is his brother." I'm not an Indian, Harry interrupted. True, Milwaukee nodded sadly, and there is no respect in your heart. That is why my people are angry at you. He emptied the bullets from the rifle and leaned it against the tree. He then took off his shirt, folded it, and laid it on the ground beside the rifle. Wewakan flexed his muscles for a moment and then removed his boots and socks. Suspecting some new danger, Harry tried to get on Wewakan's good side. Wait a minute. I'm a new man, honest. You Seminoles have proven your point. I have nothing but respect for alligators. Wewakan cocked an eyebrow. Who said I was a Seminole? He removed his pants and underwear and stood naked before Harry. You did. I mean, that's why I'm here, isn't it? You and the other Seminole Gator wrestlers were offended by my act? Harry grew suddenly suspicious. Hold on. If you're not a Seminole, then what's all this my people crap you've been laying on me? The Indian shook his head. You seem to have misunderstood me, Harry. Perhaps I didn't make myself clear. What I said about Seminole gator wrestlers is true. They do have a deep respect for the alligators they wrestle, just as the gators have a deep respect for them. As Wawakan spoke, the muscles in his chest and arms began to ripple like waves upon the ocean. What the hell? No, Harry, I am not a Seminole nor am I an Indian. My people were here long before those who call themselves native to this land. I apologize if my appearance has fooled you. I sometimes find it necessary to travel in the shape of my brothers, as was the case tonight. You might say that I, too, am an actor, Harry watched, spellbound, as Wawakan changed before his very eyes. The bones in his back cracked like rifle shots as they twisted and realigned. He grew taller, thicker, more muscular. His skin stretched taut, came close to splitting apart, then wrinkled, darkened in color, and took on the texture of old leather while Walken's hair disappeared back into his head like worms in the ground, exposing a scaly scalp. The scales spread. Like a waterfall, they cascaded over his shoulders and down his back. His arms shortened and his thumbs disappeared. A thick yellow nail sprouted from the tip of each remaining finger. There was a wet, sucking sound as his penis withdrew into his body. The sight sickened Harry. "'My people have a great respect
0: for the Indians, Harry Gallagher. For they have a great respect for us. You, on the other hand, have no respect for anything but money. That is why you were brought here tonight.
2: To learn respect. It is a pity that death has to be your teacher.' Another series of cracking sounds rang out as a tail sprouted from Wawakins' backside. The tail grew in length until it reached the ground. His legs also shortened. No longer able to stand upright, he fell to the ground at Harry's feet. Terrified nearly out of his mind, Harry stared in disbelief as Wawakins' face changed muscles twisted and moved beneath the surface of his skin like a nest of rippling snakes. His ears vanished, first the right, then the left. His jaws widened and extended forward. Teeth appeared. And as the last of the transformation took place, Wawakin, who was no longer an Indian, but something else entirely, looked up at Harry and said in a voice that was less than human, Don't you find it fitting that the world's greatest
0: alligator wrestler will find respect by wrestling me, Warwakin, the world's greatest alligator?
2: Harry screamed and staggered back. The gator attacked. Thanks for tuning in for today's episode of The Wicked Library. Stay tuned for a short interview with the author after these brief credits. The Wicked Library is created and shared for free, but there are costs involved in its production. The Wicked Library now has a Patreon account. Head on over to thewickedlibrary.com for more details and to support the show you love. We really do count on your support in order to make the show possible. The Wicked Library is sponsored by the Legends, Myths, and Whiskey Podcast, brought to you by a team of storytellers and whiskey lovers. They bring culture to life through storytelling every week. You can find them over at legendsmythsandwhiskey.com. You can, of course, also find them in iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. They also have a production of Beowulf, fully scored with music by someone those who are fans of the Wicked Library would be familiar with, Nico Vitesse. Find links in the show notes or head on over to Legends Myths and to find out more. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. All audio recorded in-house at Ninth Story Studios is recorded on Rode microphones. Find out more information about the great products over at Rode.com. That's R-O-D-E.com. And big thanks to Rode for helping us make this show possible complete show notes including credits for music, art, story and narration can be found at thewickedlibrary.com by clicking on the appropriate episode number you can also find a link to our twitter account our facebook page and a link to rate and review the show in iTunes, reviews mean a lot to us please let us know what you think of the show and now our interview with the author
1: Welcome back from listening to Owl Going Back's short story, Gator Bait. And now you get to listen to me, Jeanette Andromeda, interview the actual Owl Going Back. Um, I'm from HorrorMade.com. And Owl, how you doing?
4: I am doing wonderful. I am sitting here in Orlando in the middle of January, and it's 80 degrees outside. So, yeah, I'm, I can't complain at all.
1: Oh, I am so jealous. It's like, I don't even know what degrees it is up today, but I was actually able to open the windows um, as long as I continued to keep a sweater and like multiple layers on, but it was like sunny. (laughs) So it felt luxurious.
4: (laughs) We had like one day of winter. I think they planned it in Florida to have winter on a Friday and we did as we've had like one cold day the whole season, which means we're going to die in the summer. You guys can laugh at us then.
1: (laughs) Oh, there you go. And I'll just say come visit. Except it's maybe muggier. No, that's not true. It's totally muggier down there.
4: Yeah, a lot muggier. Yeah, yeah, all the time. It's muggy now.
1: <laughs> Race is colder. Question... Not even <laughs> at eighty, it's it's fine. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um. So, Owl, like you were a mystery to me until I realized I'd listened to your story on the Wicked Library.
4: Yeah, they did one in October. They did Sealed with a Kiss, which was a, they did a fantastic job on that. I love the uh, the dramatic audio cuz I, I was raised listening to like the CBS Radio Mystery Theater. So I'm I'm always thrilled when a wicked library contacts me for a story.
1: Awesome. Well, we're really excited to have you back and this particular story today was just like I'm I'm actually really glad I didn't do my research before reading the story, so I kind of just like read your story cuz I didn't get to listen to it, folks, like we're in the future, past. Mm. Podcast time frame, doesn't make any sense. But I got to read your story kind of in a vacuum of not knowing anything other than this specific story. So it really surprised me, um, just like the twist at the end there. So I guess my first question for you is kind of like, can you tell me a little bit more about what you were thinking as you started writing Gator Bait?
4: Uh, I've, actually, I wrote Gator Bay because I've got several friends who are alligator wrestlers, and those guys just absolutely amaze me because I'm not going to wrestle a six-foot alligator. I'm not going to wrestle a six-inch alligator. There's just no way. Uh, James Billy, who was the chief of the Seminoles, the Miccosukee tribe, uh, one time he, he showed up at a powwow, and I was sitting on the tailgate of his truck, and it was nighttime, and I'm talking to him. I hear this noise, and I turn my head, and there's this huge alligator in the back of his truck. It was a, a nine-footer, and I couldn't tell the mouth was taped, you know, because it was dark, and I about wet myself. This gator's one out of the truck, and I'm like, James, 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 get your, get your gator, get your gator. I'm not touching this thing. But just big alligators It's Florida, they're everywhere. You can't get in the water down here without seeing them. And it just I was like, these guys that do this for a living or even mess with alligators are amazing. And I was told a story about James Billy. He had done a, a show out in Vegas, and right before the show, he was supposed to go on this uh, thing. Uh, guy was with him this lawyer for the Seminole tribe this big gentleman came said james we've got a problem and he goes what problem he said gator's dead they go what do you mean the gator's dead he said It's dead. It died. And James was like, What are we going to do? And he's like, Not me, you. And he pushed James Billy out there on a stage in front of the live audience. Of course, most of them drunk. And then he threw the gator out there. He slid the gator across the floor. So for 20 minutes, James Billy wrestles a dead gator in front of a large audience, and nobody had any idea he was doing it, and the gator was dead. I said, There's gator bait right there. That was the idea for inspiration for gator bait that somebody could be that much of a performer to wrestle a dead alligator and get away with it.
1: Oh my gosh, that's an incredible story! Holy cow!
4: Oh, I was dying when I heard it. I said, "Oh, I, I can't, I can't make up stuff that good. No. I can make expand on it and tell my own version of it." But you know, that's basically what this guy was doing in his story was wrestling one that's been, you know, drugged and slow and sleepy. So it was a flashback to, to what really happened with James and Billy.
1: Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs>
4: Uh, Mr. Billy doesn't wrestle anymore because there's actually a video you can see on like one of those shows, like when animals attack where he's wrestling a gator and it takes his thumb off. <gasps> and he's got the thumb in the glass jar. But at that time, his wife said, no more.
1: Yeah, because it but... could have been more than a thumb. <laughs>
4: and he was a showman then because on the video, when he loses his thumb, he t- tucked his hand under his arm and walks off like nothing's wrong. So wow. nobody kno- knew that he had just lost a finger.
1: Oh, my gosh. He's like, yeah, no big deal. I just, you know. <laughs> everybody's well, got, got the... two
4: of these <laughs> he's got he's still got his finger but it's in a jar on his desk so yeah you know, just <laughs> for the show people
1: that's amazing <laughs> i can imagine that conversation like hey want to see my thumb
4: exactly. no exactly one
1: on my desk
4: I have known three alligator wrestlers and two of them got bit. And one of them, I was actually there when he got bit. And it was a gentleman named Ron Moses, who was uh, ex-Vietnam POW, a really big Creek Indian. And he got bit because he was sweating profusely at the fairgrounds and his hand slipped and that gator nailed him. And right then I said, this is something I am never, ever going to do in my life.
1: Oh, heck no. (laughs) That's just playing with fate. Which I do think came through really well with the story, too, actually.
4: <laughs> it, it was fun. I mean, i am known a lot of guys have had gators and stuff. A friend of mine who was a stuntman had would raise gators, and I, he asked me to feed them one time. And they were small. They might have been like two-footers, and they were in their tank, and I'm going to feed them turtle food. And I forgot these little devils could jump And I went, I hold my hand over the tank and this gator came straight up after me. I had turtle food all over his apartment. It was wonderful.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like, nope, even though you're little, I don't care. At least I like my thumbs.
4: Yeah, they got sharp teeth, even the little ones.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. I uh, think the closest I've ever come is like, I've visited the South and I was like, oh, look, that's a gator. I'm in a car. That's great. I'm going to go far away now.
4: I think there's nothing scarier than being out in a small boat at night, and you're shining a flashlight, and you see the eyes of the gators looking back at you. At that point, it's terrifying. I want to be on dry land real fast. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Can they get in? Have you ever had one like try to get into your boat while you're on one?
4: No, I never got that close to them. That's I mean, and, you know how I, I've been out several times to like get me away from them. When there's too many of them. Let's stay off the shore. And, if you live in Florida, you know. All certain times, feeding time. You don't go swimming at sunset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, canoes in the daytime, they usually try to stay away from you. At nighttime, they're more apt to be feeding. So it's like, give me a bigger boat, better protection. Let's stay away from the reeds and uh, the shoreline.
1: Good to know. So if you're already out, you just stay out for the night. Stay on That's it. Boat.
4: <laughs> stay out in the middle of the water.
1: Oh, man. What our listeners might not know about you that I now know about you is that you are you are Native American, but I don't know what... Tribe or anything. Can you tell me some more about that, about your uh, heritage?
4: I'm Choctaw and I'm Cherokee. Uh, now, if people ask me, I'll tell them I'm urban Indian. I'm smackaho And they <laughs> might, have, might have heard of our leader, Chief Spread Eagle. Uh, Christmas time, I tell my kids I'm Cheapasaw. That way I am spending spend anything <laughs> on gifts. Yeah, I'm. I'm a, we're from the southeastern area, so you know, even though we live down in this area, our tribes originally, uh, Gators are not in my, uh, you know, his history of wrestling. I don't have to prove my manhood anyway, like that.
1: Right. The like the kind of mythos that's built into your story is that based on reality, or is this something that you invented, kind of using that background? Well, I,
4: you, but there's a lot of reality in gator bait. I mean, the Seminole gator wrestlers are fantastic, and they did put on shows. Now, though, the Seminole Indians have casinos. They own the hard rock uh, chain of hotels and casinos. So if you go down to the reservation in South Florida, you won't see too many uh, Native American gator wrestlers anymore, especially Seminoles, because they got a paycheck coming in regardless. They don't need to risk their fingers, digits, arms, et cetera. So now most of the gator wrestlers down there are the white guys because the Seminoles don't need to, to earn a living that way anymore.
1: Yeah. They've got a a much better paycheck coming. <laughs>
4: exactly, you know. It's a lot safer. Yeah. Uh they still do they still do, you know they put on walls. they do a very busy storytelling uh James Billy is a wonderful singer. So they still got other things they do share with people. And they'll take you out on airboat rides in the, in the Everglades, but yeah, a lot of them have put aside Gator wrestling. But all my stories, I use a lot of the Native American elements. You know, I, I like to share. You know, a lot of people don't know the, the Native culture or the history, and a lot of people don't want to read nonfiction books. So I consider myself a traditional storyteller. I'll I'll tell a fiction story, but I'll I'll weave some teachings and some educational in there. So you know, people are getting educated whether they like it or not when you read something that I've written. Which is why that my books are being used across the country in schools and colleges and in fact even being used in the county jail for a youthful offender program. And, which is kind of funny because I was like, you guys realize I kill people in my stories in horrible ways. And they're like, yeah, but the, you, know, you also have about respect the elders, uh, respect the earth, and things like that. And these kids are getting a lot out of it. And it's, for many of them, it's the first time they've ever read a book. Wow. And yeah. I've, been, I've been to jail several times, talk to these people in Youthful Offender Program, and they, they take this course. For an, uh, it's an eight-week course. They write about what they've read, and they keep their nose clean, and they're rewarded at the end of the course by their p- families bringing in a home-cooked meal. So I thought that was wonderful that somebody could read some of my garbage and actually be rewarded when they're behind bars with a visit with their family and real food. Wow. And I've been down here several times talking to these kids, and they leave the room, and they, they have the most wonderful questions. They've got so much out of the stories they're reading. But when they walk out of the room, these 15- and 16-year-olds, they tell me, oh, this guy's in for murder. This guy's in for armed robbery. This guy, and basically, they've screwed their lives up because nobody got to them soon enough to educate them, I mean, to teach them what right and wrong and you know it's a shame because these kids you know they're not stupid they just made really bad mistakes in life
1: wow now that that's just incredible and the fact that you know like like you said like horror can actually help like legitimately help that's incredible you know it's, yeah, it's rewarding it's just yeah. powerful
4: it is and you know it was kind of funny because the program that're being used here is actually here in Orlando at the Orange County Correctional Facility, and they didn't know I was local. so I get this package in the mail from Orange County Correction and the first thing I'm thinking is what have my sons done wrong? but it was photographs of these kids holding these holding my books, and so I called them up and said, "Look, guys, I'm local and they were like, "Can you come down and talk to these kids?" I said, "I'd be delighted to." And, you know, I got so much out of it. Of course, my wife went with me the first time. And when we walked into the jail, she was terrified. I said, oh, that's what I told you. It's in jail. And when of the people walking by in handcuffs and they're like, you know, chained together. Wow. But it, it was nice, you know, to see that these kids got something out of just reading a book. Especially something of mine, because it's like, okay, and he got rewarded with a home cooked meal. And I just thought that was wonderful. That's like some of the probably one of the things I'm most proud of is being a writer that I was able to reach out and actually touch somebody that way.
1: And and not just one person, but like a bunch of kids who exactly. out of out of any group of kids desperately needed some like some moral compass.
4: Well it just goes to anything
1: exactly
3: <laughs>
4: And it goes back to my, my my culture, my people. I mean, that's how we used to teach the children were through oral stories. We would throw the stories out there, and if they got the lesson out of the story, then good for them. If they didn't get it, then they weren't paying attention. I mean, my oldest son studied with a medicine man for a while, and he I talked to him on the phone. and say, well, what did you learn? He's like, nothing. I said, well, what are you doing? He said, well, we're doing beadwork every night. I said, well, what are you doing during the beadwork? He said, oh, he's telling you stories. I said, I didn't pay attention because he is teaching you. <laughs> so it's the same way with the books today. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. Is you know, it's through, I never, I've told people I've never claimed to be a writer. I'm a storyteller, and I love the oral storytelling. I'm just putting it on paper.
1: <laughs> that's such a great way of thinking about it too. And it felt it really did. Maybe that's why your stories work so well in audio form, actually, because they're they're storytelling instead of just written for reading. It comes through exactly. pretty well, actually.
4: I have a lot of people tell me like that that their their husbands or usually it's the husband or sons aren't aren't readers. They go, well, they don't really like to read, but they like like my stuff. And I tease people. I say, well, you know, people like my books because I don't use any big words in them. mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I write it at a a normal level. I don't try to show off. Of course, I tell them I don't really because I don't know any big words.
1: That's not an issue. If you can tell the stories you need to without having fancy words, then you're actually a more effective storyteller in some ways.
4: (laughs) Yeah, and you know, I mean, I'm sorry, but a lot of people now, the reading levels for for many years in America had gone down where people weren't paying attention to reading. Uh, But I am seeing it reversed now. I'm seeing some brilliant 9 and 10-year-olds coming up reading at a far advanced level than I ever read at that age. So it's almost like, you know, the complete opposite of what we've been seeing for a while. The kids are putting aside the Game Boys and the games and stuff and going back to reading books.
1: Yeah, because now they suddenly they're even more accessible. Like you can go, oh, I could uh, play this game or read a book on the same device. Well, shoot. exactly. <laughs> Swipe left. <laughs> um, so what are you working on right now? Anything new? I am.
4: I am uh, currently. I'm working on comic scripts. I just. I, I just completed uh, DC Entertainment's uh, Talent Showcase uh, Writers Workshop. I was one of eight people out of 1,500 applicants picked for a 13-week course where they taught us how to write comics.
3: Wow! So, congrats.
4: I, I, thank you. I just did two two comics for them, and I'm. I'm I've got to have a conference call with the beginning this week about where I continue this co- comic that I've just did. Cause it's not a single issue comic. Uh, I've got also working on a couple scripts. I've got uh, for for film, and I've got a uh, a three uh, a trilogy a dark fantasy trilogy that I'm working on with Native American mythos. The first book Coyote Rage is actually done, and I'm working on the, the second and third on that. And I just brought out a collection of short stories, including Gator Bait, in a book called Tribal Screams, which uh, incorpor- also ties in with a, uh, a coffee from the Coffee Shop of Horrors. It's Al Goingback's Tribal Screams Roasted Chestnut Flavored Coffee. So now they can read the book and enjoy the coffee at the same time.
1: That sounds like a delicious combination. I actually <laughs> noticed that you had a coffee flavor, and I was like, ooh, I know what it's I need to buy. <laughs> Along with your books, though, too, because I was looking through you you've written quite a few too. Like, how, yeah, just... a lot a
4: lot of them and I've won the Bram Stoker Award for best first novel, been uh, been up for the Stoker Award three times. I was a Nebula Award nominee. In addition to my books, I've also ghost written for Hollywood celebrities.
1: Do you find it challenging writing uh, for other people or is it kind of fun slipping into other people's brains?
4: No, it's kind of a pain writing for celebrities. I mean, uh, everybody in Hollywood wants to be director, actor, writer, et etc., and they don't want to do the work. And of course, they're busy doing films, and it's kind of like it's double work because you got you write the book, and then the editor's got to make tell you the changes they want, and then uh, the actor makes the changes they want. So it can be a royal pain because Holly, Hollywood, when they're used to doing scripts, are used to keep doing rewrites up until the last minute oh, yeah. and with book, you, books you do one set of rewrites and i had to tell them basically look i'll do two sets of rewrites and that's it we're not going to keep, keep rewriting this thing
1: <laughs> that's when it's on camera and you're done <laughs>
4: paid good and somebody else has got their picture on the book and their name on the book and i got paid really great to keep my mouth shut and write it for them so there it worked go. out
1: that works Get paid for the work you do. Just you That's know, exactly right. Money talks. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it definitely does. Are the bills paid? Yes, they're yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious. Like, how did you end up getting into that kind of uh situation with that kind of work?
4: With, with the ghostwriting? Yeah. Uh, I, I wrote a, a story uh, called Grass Dancer. And which appeared in, uh, originally in an anthology from Warner Books, and it's also in Tribal Screams. Uh, it's been republished all over the world. It's probably my best short story. Uh, it's a very emotional story. And this person was looking for a writer to do their books, and they sent them the story, and they read it on an airplane and cried like a baby, and said, "I want this person." So they gave me the, flew me up to New York, and put me up for the weekend. I had, I uh, got to meet the, the, the multi Emmy award-winning actor, and, and wow. threw a pitch on him, and wrote his book.
1: Wow. That's incredible.
4: It was because I was just starting out as a writer, too. So it was kind of terrifying. So I ended up, you know, when I first started out, I ended up writing like three books at the same time. Oh, wow. So I said, yes, I can do it. Then I went home and had panic attacks about, can I really do this? But yeah, it worked out okay.
1: How do you juggle writing three different projects at the same time or more?
4: Drugs and alcohol, basically. <laughs> there you go.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
4: caffeine, lots of caffeine, and nut, nutty butter bars, kind of thing. I mean, you, yep. you, you you stay up all night writing, and you sweat it out, and and you, l- luckily I get to jump around a lot. I, I mean, I go nuts if I just had to write novels all the time. I just I like the challenge of doing something new. And so when I had a chance to apply for the comic writing, I said, "Well, I haven't done comics yet. This is more interesting." So it kind of perks me up when I when I change genres or change what I'm doing.
1: That makes sense, just kind of like getting reinvigorated with different aspects of it. But exactly. it sounds like you mostly focus on like the craft of writing, even though your different venues kind of change from time to time.
4: Exactly. I mean, writing is writing. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, whether you're doing scripts, comics, books, it's all about, you know, having emotional impact, a uh, good plot, uh, beginning, middle and end. And you can go to all these different writing classes and they'll tell you the same thing. I mean, all the basics are the same. It's just learning the different formats.
1: Out of all of the different ways you've written, what's been your most uh, rewarding, I guess? Not necessarily most enjoyable, but like rewarding.
4: And the novels and the children's books. I mean, the, the novels, especially when, I, when I've when i done fantasy, science fiction, and horror novels, and the horror novels have been the most rewarding because it's one thing to have somebody write you and say, look, I loved your, loved your book. But when you have somebody write you and say, look, your book scared the tar out of me. I had to sleep with the lights on. Or as a gentleman in Jacksonville wrote me, he said his truck broke down on a lor- lonely dark road and he, you know, he just read uh, my novel Crota and he said he was working on the truck's engine with a flashlight and the crickets stopped chirping. And he was so sure the monster had him that he went and dove in his truck and locked the doors.
1: That's uh, awesome. <laughs>
4: I, you can't beat that. I mean, that's the best.
1: That's Yeah, that would be, that's like achievement unlocked. Ding! Someone had yeah. to climb into their car to get away from your monster amazing <laughs>
4: and I, people my age usually fuss at me because I, I always put a, an animal in, in a in one of my horn animals and they never make it to the end and he goes why do you do that why do you have to kill a cat or a puppy dog or a dog i said because i get more hate mail for doing that than i ever do for a monster to slaughter 60 people i said i get more emotion out of my readers because i've killed killed a cat I said it could care less how many people I kill, but it, when you touch an animal, I said, and it just it just stirs them up. It just to me, it's it's kind of fun. I'm, I'm sorry, it's it's evil fun. I'm not really hurting anything in real life. I'm just bothering the, the animal lovers out there.
1: <laughs> so, do you collect your hate mail? Is that like a like a trophy in a
4: way? Yeah, yeah, I've got. I've, yeah, most of them nowadays are emails. So I, back oh, in the okay. days with the the, the, the envelopes and stamps, yeah, I've got a few of those along with a few. Hey, we love your stuff. I've actually had people come up to me at a powwow, and uh, they had read my novel, Crota, and it's it's basically a a very large creature the size of a grizzly who, like man, loves to hunt for the pleasure because man is the only creature that does that. And they they walked up to me, and I've surrounded it with Indian legends in the story, so everybody who's ever reviewed it thinks it's a real creature of of actual folklore. It's not, I made it up. These people told me they had seen the Crota walking in the Ocala forest. I'm like, you saw the crota? And they're like, well, we didn't actually see it, but we felt its presence. It is a real monster, isn't wow. it? And it broke my heart to say, no, look, I made it up. But I said, there's other things out there. Maybe you saw a skunk ape or something. But to <laughs> have them actually believe they had encountered it in the forest, just made my day.
1: Oh, gosh, yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. <laughs> you have made up a new legend, and it's just going to keep going.
4: Well it, it kind of it's a good thing making up new legends where it's believable and it's actually it can be a bad thing. I had a gaming company recently do an extension pack uh, called the Crota's Layer, oh. and it's about an underground monster. I'm so, I said, "No, they got it from my book." I said, "It just reads too similar." Yeah, I said, "But yeah. they probably thought it was a real Indian legend." They didn't realize they were ripping off my intellectual property. And there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, it's, a, it's one of the larger companies; they got billions, and I don't. So, you yeah, know, no sense yeah. to even bothering with a lawyer because I wouldn't win. They just nickel me to death.
1: Mm-hmm. would be like, "Sure, we can just drag this out forever, and then uh, yep. you're broke, and then the problem's gone." Great.
4: <laughs> You're broken, dying. We, yeah, yeah. we can wait you out. We <laughs> yeah. got young people.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> uh, well, I, we're kind of at the end of the time frame that Dan would like us to go to. So, okay. Owl, um, where can people find you and more of your work?
4: Well, actually, I just recently got on Facebook after fighting for six years. They didn't believe my name was real. I had to scan my drive. I had to send a picture of my driver's license and birth certificate. They wanted me to scan it back in the day. I didn't have a scanner. And I didn't think it was fair because they gave me a Facebook page of Sasquatch. And I know Bigfoot doesn't drive. But I am on Facebook. I do have a Twitter account, which is O going back. I don't have it as Al going back on Twitter because some lady was using my name, and I still don't understand why. And then I have my, my website, and it's got an email address on. so i'm I'm very very uh you can reach me really easily
1: absolutely and everyone should so thank you so much owl and uh thank you to everyone who's been listening and we'll see you next week
4: thank you very much i enjoyed this
1: me too